0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 98 Housekeeping. When you're a resident of a planet taking its first steps out into the cosmos, it's important that you know what to pack on your next trip to orbit. But it's also important to ensure you have your house in order. Perhaps starting with some basic planetology. For example... Dear Cheap Astronomy, Do we have the ability to measure the exact amount of heat arriving at the Earth from the Sun? Here on Earth, we often talk about light as being what we can see and heat as being what we can feel. But really... Any wavelength of electromagnetic radiation can raise the temperature of something that absorbs it. A microwave oven heats things with high-amplitude radio waves, and even although high-frequency ionizing radiation, like ultraviolet, X and gamma rays, tend to destroy the things that they radiate, they will still heat them up as they destroy them. So, in a nutshell it's best just to talk about the Sun's energy output. When all the electromagnetic wavelengths are taken together, the Sun's surface emits about 63 million watts of energy per square metre. By the time that energy reaches Earth, after travelling 150 million kilometres and being spread out over that distance, the solar flux has diminished to around 1360 watts per square metre, as it hits the Earth's upper atmosphere. That figure of 1360 watts per square metre is what's known as the solar constant, a measure of the solar flux that strikes one square metre of area positioned exactly one astronomical unit from the Sun and exactly perpendicular to the mean direction of solar radiation. So really, the solar constant is a standard measurement, and it's actually never constant, because the sun's output always varies slightly over time. That variation is mostly about the sun's fluctuating magnetic field, which underlies the solar cycle, where it takes around 11 years to move from a solar minimum, very few sunspots, to a solar maximum, lots of sunspots, and over that 11-year period, the strangely named solar constant increases by about 0.1%, and then drops by about that same proportion over the next 11 years. Beyond that, we know the sun's output is very slowly increasing. When it first ignited about 5 billion years ago, its luminosity was only 70% of what it is now. In another billion years from now, it will get another 6% more luminous, and that will be enough to evaporate the oceans and spell the end of Earth's habitability. Of course, all this has been determined on paper. It's a barely measurable change. We just know it's happening in the background, and that our Derm is, very slowly, approaching. Down here on the surface, it does seem as though the sun's output fluctuates wildly, even though it doesn't. Of most importance to our experience of temperature on the surface is the axial tilt of the planet. For example, at 45 degrees latitude, the sun is in the sky for 15 and a half hours at one solstice and just eight and three quarter hours at the other solstice, which is a whopping 54% difference in day length. But that's not actually what matters. If day length was what mattered, then the hottest places on Earth would be the poles in their respective summer times when they receive 24 hours of daylight. What really matters is the angle of incidence of solar radiation. In those long polar summer days, the sun is barely above the horizon, so most of its straight-line radiation misses the Earth's surface. At the equator, Despite there being only 12 hours of sunlight per day, the sun is straight overhead, meaning its radiation is always directed right at the Earth's surface, and so it's always hotter. Regardless of the angle of incidence, some of the solar energy that arrives at the Earth bounces off the outer atmosphere, some of it penetrates and then bounces off clouds, and some of it interacts with, and is absorbed by, the atmosphere – thereby heating the atmosphere. As a consequence of all that, the surface of the Earth only receives about half of the incoming solar radiation that hits the upper atmosphere, and even then, a lot of that is reflected back from the surface. But that energy, reflected back from the surface, still has to make it back out into space through the atmosphere. This is why all that stuff about greenhouse gases really matters. If you pump more CO2 into the atmosphere, it really does get hotter, and that is easily measurable. This is the middle bit. So yes, it is important to know how your home world works, and to know how to maintain it properly. Nonetheless, in the not-too-distant future, we can expect more opportunities to leave home for a brief sojourn into the final frontier. So the big question there is, what do you pack? Dear Cheap Astronomy, are astronauts allowed to take their own tech gear aboard the International Space Station? Well, there are no absolute rules on this. Since most ISS astronauts also undertake research work, some have been approved to take their own tech gear, but this is probably more the exception than the rule. Any tech gear adds launch mass, and there is already a lot of tech aboard the ISS, including lots of proprietary hardware for running several proprietary operating systems and lots of proprietary software. So there's limited need for anyone to take their own off-the-shelf tablet or notebook, and those do represent a potential security hazard if they are carrying any malware. It's also the case that some electronics just can't take the higher radiation levels that are routine 400 kilometres above the Earth's surface. The traditional workhorses of the ISS have been IBM and Lenovo Thinkpads, which seem to handle the radiation relatively well, and if they didn't, having a standard platform at least meant it was easy to swap out a faulty hard disk or to reload a software disk image. Those workhorses are still there, but in recent years the growing diversity of researchers, needing diverse tech to run their diverse research, means that lots of combinations of both hard and software are now available on board, including Apple iPads, Surface Pros, and 3D and augmented reality headsets, just for example. Mind you, some systems that support the spacecraft aspects of the ISS still run off 086 and 386 chips, and most of their software runs on a Linux operating system. So really, there are several generations of tech, old and new, on board. Now, there's not much point taking your smartphone aboard, since there's no phone coverage, and any apps you might run on your smartphone Will run just as well on an onboard tablet. Also, there's a general nervousness about some mobile phone batteries, which are known to overheat or even explode. Nonetheless, there are certified Safe-for-Flight smartphones on board, both Apple and Android. For example, as we've covered in the fabulous Cheap Astronomy mini-series Science on the ISS – The SPHERES, the three floating robots with onboard processors and CO2 gas thrusters, also have expansion ports that you can connect a smartphone to, which will then provide the SPHERES with visual data through the phone's camera, orientation data through its accelerometer, and just general extra processing power. Astronauts could also ask to take up game consoles, but it's unlikely they would, unless there's some kind of research angle to it. After all, it is a full-time job being an astronaut, so you wouldn't have a lot of time for games, and it's never a good look to be gaming in the office. It's more common for astronauts to watch movies or play music, or of course listen to podcasts, and to achieve that... They can just list what they need and have those files uploaded from Earth onto an ISS server and then load those files onto one of the various onboard devices available. The ISS also has PowerPoints, though not ones you'd be familiar with. These are called UOPs, Utility Outlet Ports, designed with safety in mind so they won't create sparks and their special cords and plugs ensure tiny flakes of molten metal don't break off the plug prongs and then float around the cabin, which is apparently a genuine risk with electrical systems in microgravity. The ISS's electrical system runs on DC power, which comes from solar panel charged batteries, delivered as 120 volts in the US segment and 28 volts in the Russian segment. It's still the case that small devices can be charged from low-voltage USB ports, although even those small devices will need to be checked for their spaceworthiness. Of course, if you are a space tourist, on a short flight and on a multi-million dollar ticket, there will be less restrictions imposed, though still some. For example, no lighter fluid, pressurised containers or firearms. It's really just like how things were in the pre-pandemic days when we all used to fly around in planes. This is the end bit. So, there you go. There is more to space travel than just knowing where your towel is. Before you go anywhere, you should always make sure you have your house in order so there's something to come back to. And before you go, you'll want to call ahead to make sure you have all the right compatible gear, so that you'll be able to keep up with your favourite podcasts. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to recharge your batteries, why not write to CheapAstro at gmail.com and we'll adjust the ampage for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nalek, Cheap Astronomy.